like they, they, they took the army's ability to fight away. And the storyline that we read this morning, you have to know that on the Philistine side are all these iron weapons. And on the Israelite side, there were probably very few of them because the Philistines were stealing all that iron. And so the Philistines are still the issue. It's been a cycle that's gone on and on and on, and the people had never conquered this. And it's because the people who were supposed to be the conquerors, their deliverers, Samson and Saul, had turned out to be people who didn't really have a lot of faith in God. They actually thought they could do it on their own, and they got beat time and time again. So enter David. Let me read the words of 1 Samuel for you, if I can find them quickly. I think there's something like ruddy and handsome. You know, ruddy and handsome. I don't, I'm not even sure what that means. This, this boy, David, was ruddy and handsome. He was young. He wasn't a seasoned warrior, right? He was somebody who approached this battle. And here he is coming onto the battlefield of, of Israel's life, okay? And sometimes you don't know when the defining moments are upon you. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, this looks in past history like a defining moment. In fact, David is the final conqueror of this problem. The Philistine problem is going to be taken care of by this young shepherd boy. Nobody knows that he's going to do that at the moment. And frankly, I think he's not somebody who's really that well aware of what what role he's going to play in history. But he says, I'm called to this battle in this moment, and I'm going to step out, and I'm going to do it. Now, here's the thing. Now, ponder this. You face battles, right? Everybody in this room faces battles. I love the story of the Old Testament because it's the story of battles. The Bible gives us two primary metaphors or pictures, word pictures, about how our life is supposed to look. One is our relationship with God. How how does it compare our relationship with God? It says that we're supposed to be like a marriage. It's a little weird. But David got that, right? Love and romance are the area of poets. And last week we talked about David as a poet. He wrote 73 poems that are still in the Bible today. And he was a great one to talk about how he felt on the inside. But he was also, as it turns out, the great warrior. He was the the lead general of Israel's history, the one who conquered the best, the greatest warrior in one sense, although not personally the strongest. And so David comes on the scene, and he's somebody who's weak. We all can identify with him because, frankly, we have battles in our lives too. And David had no idea that he was going to be this gigantic conqueror that we all know about. He had no idea that that Goliath was going to be out there in that field that day. He had no idea that he was going to be nine feet tall. He had no idea that he was going to be called upon in this moment. It just appeared out of thin air that his life and this Goliath's life, they intersected and there was a battle. I don't know what the battle is going to be for you. Maybe you've seen it in your past. You can look back. You can see some betrayal, some grief in your heart. You've lost somebody. You've been betrayed by someone. You've, been, you've, you've questioned your vocation. Maybe that spirit that I saw in my son and the other guys climbing the rock pile yesterday, that conquest attitude that they had, maybe that just kind of has been slipping out in cracks in your life, and you're just to the point where you know you're not a conqueror. You're to the place in your life like I heard in one movie where they said, maybe this is as good as it gets. And God is saying, no, listen, I have put every child of mine on this planet for a reason. And that's because you have a battle that you're called to fight. You're called to make your sphere of influence the kingdom of God. It's not to be your kingdom. It's to be God's kingdom. But he puts you there. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 concludes with the line that God has put good works in advance on earth for us to do. You have a mission. And I don't know what that mission is. It's a unique mission. Each one of us has that sort of mission in our life, something that we are called to that is unlike everybody else's. Nobody else can do your mission. There's one great missionary. She was a woman in an era when women were not missionaries, Southern Baptist missionary. And I read her story once, and she said, I think I'm here ministering to these people in Africa because God told some man to do it, and that man said no. 
I love that story. I have no idea that it's true. God probably from the very beginning had an idea about women, what women could do that people have been wrong about so many times. But God has called us and has called you to a battle. And I don't know what that battle looks like, but it does look like his kingdom becoming a part of what's going on on this planet. In your family, God's kingdom needs to take place. It needs to be a part of what your family is all about. And yet that's going to take a battle. Your marriage has to be within the confines of God's kingdom. Your vocation needs to be a part of God's kingdom where he leads. You need this to be true. And yet we live in real workplaces, right? We work in places where not everything is ethical and right and good. We have large needs of wisdom and we fight battles every day trying to get these parts of our lives to be a part of the kingdom of God. Well, for all of us who find this to be a little bit daunting, who wonder where our courage went, there is this little shepherd boy who ends up on a a gigantic field of battle with two opposing armies watching. There is a huge audience for what's going on here. And for whatever reason, David's faith is unconquerable. He, in the moment, knows his calling and he grabs hold. I want us to walk through this story from the standpoint of understanding the battles in the Old Testament. There are lots of battles, right? There's tons and tons of battles. And have you ever noticed that not many of them are fought the same way? You know, when we as a nation go to war, our country has a battle plan that's tried and proven. We have this kind of theory of war that we know how to do. But but did God ever tell two people to walk around a city like you did Joshua and Jericho six times or six days in a row? And then on the final day, seven times. And then the walls just fall down. He never tells David to do that or Moses to do that. He actually has a unique battle plan for every every enemy in every situation these people face. And frankly, he has that for you as well. We need to talk about it. We need to talk about what it means to to fight the battles the Lord's way. And then we need to talk about how that might be individually different for you than for every other person on this planet. So... Just a few questions to begin, okay? A few questions that we'll walk through this story with. Uh, the first one is this. Whose battle is it? David understands something about whose battle this is. He sees it as differently than what we might see it. The second question is whose pride is on the line? And the third, whose weapons will you fight with? Those three questions are, are we going to walk through the story and go, okay, how did King David and how do, he wasn't a king yet, but I call him that. How did David and how do people who want to follow God battle for the Lord? How do they engage themselves in the fight that's actually always around them? The Lord has called you to this. The question is, will we do it his way? Will we understand it from his perspective? So first off, whose battle is it? I love this line that David says, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. You know, if you were Samson in this story, you would say, I've killed 2,000 Philistines at one moment. I can handle one Goliath, right? Isn't it interesting that hundreds of years probably exist between Samson's lifetime and David's, and yet somehow God aligned the time so that it wasn't Samson who fought Goliath. The greatest archenemy of God and the greatest warrior for God don't ever meet. God has a better plan than that. He's saying, listen, this is my battle, and I'll choose it my way, and I will choose who I want to fight it. And he chooses somebody small and seemingly insignificant, somebody who watches sheep. You have to kind of get your mind wrapped around this, right? Whose battle is it? The question is, does does David see this from the vantage point of God or does David see it from his own vantage point? You know, David understands that what's going on in this storyline is that there is a need 
for the God of the universe to empower him or else he's not going to conquer. There's no possibility that he's going to conquer in his own strength. He feels small. I suspect that the initial response of David was to suddenly understand how insignificant and tiny he really was compared to this gigantic warrior who he was going to oppose. And so the first thing we have to come to grips with is this is a, it's God's battle. The second kind of connected to it is whose pride is on the line. Think of these words of David. Who is this uncircumcised? That, that means godless, by the way. If you don't understand the picture, I'm not going to go into details because as a, a pastor, I'm not a medical professional and I don't want to try to explain this to you. But that's what it actually means. Just take my word for it. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David, in the moment when the enemy attacks doesn't think it's his battle you know when somebody says something bad about me you know what i think i've helped them i've done this i've been their friend for how many years and they talked badly about me to this other person i'm so concerned about my own pride why would they do that why i gotta take the knife out of my back i can't believe that so and so would talk this way about me and i see these situations as having to do with my pride sometimes when a bad thing happens in my life i wonder what will all those other people in my life think for some reason david doesn't think that way his faith says that this is god's battle and this man has defied god himself it's not about Goliath defying the Israelites. If I was in this battle, I would have normally thought, look at this man who stands up against our nation. Look at this man who stands up against me. Look at the man who's standing up against my brothers and my king. How, how, how can he do this? We're not going to allow this. Our pride is, uh, you know, we, we, it's on the line, right? Most of the time when we play in a sport, when we get involved in one of those things that occurs at work where we're trying to move up the ranks, when we're trying to move forward in life, what we're trying to do is make sure that our pride is assuaged, that we get comforted for this massive ego inside of us where we want to look good. We don't like people to know when we're out of cash, when we're feeling sick, when we're a little bit broken, when we're fighting with our spouse. You ever get in one of those fights on the way to church? And you pull into the parking lot and you park your car and, and you, you, you battle it out for 20 more seconds. And then you notice so-and-so walking across the parking lot. Okay, 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 we're good now, you know. And then you walk in and when you see me or whoever's greeting you at the door, what do you do? How are you doing? Oh, I am good. I had a good week. You were screaming 50 yards from the church parking lot and now you're good? I don't believe the human spirit can do that. You didn't get there. You're You're lying. Why, why are you lying? And I have done this too. We try to put it, a good show on for everybody out there. Why do we do that? Because it's our pride on the line. If it's really going to be God's battle, then we have to look from his perspective. And if it's really from God's perspective we're going to look, we're going to realize that the whole battle is going to look a lot differently. Our battles we fight from a standpoint of making us look good. God's battles we fight from the standpoint of making God look good. And David handles this battle in a completely different way. His questions all the way along the line are, how could somebody stand up to the almighty God of the universe? It's not about him standing up to, to me personally. It's about him standing up to the God who's behind me. He's defying God. He's spitting on the name of God. He has somehow made God look bad. That's not okay. And I can expect that God is concerned about this and wants to act. You know, when you get into a battle in your life, you have to find out where God is. And God is in different places, you know. 
I've walked through cancer with I don't know how many different people. And sometimes when we sit and pray, I've sat next to somebody and said, we're going to pray for healing, and I've seen God do it. I've seen God actually just move in these remarkable ways where somebody walks away cancer-free for years, decades of life, moving towards this, this healthy life pattern that they're all excited about. And then I've seen moments where we've prayed, and I've thought, I think this is probably going to end with that person passing away. And that's okay, right? And I've seen God sit at the bedside of somebody as they fought that battle. And it's not a battle they're going to win versus cancer. Everybody dies. It's a battle they're fighting with their spirit in connection to have joy in the moment, to have faith that they're actually going to a place where God is going to call him into their home and where the Lord walks with them through that moment. I love those, the, those little uh, connections that happen at the bedside when somebody is walking towards their final end on this earth with God and not apart from him. The battles we fight are all sorts of different battles. Are you fighting the battles in your life from the standpoint of my pride's on the line where everything that hurts you is damaging to you and you're never looking from the standpoint of God because from that perspective, you can't actually pray. You can't actually have confidence. You can't actually trust that it's God's kingdom being built because what you're doing is you're building your kingdom, right? That's about you. That's about me. And we all do it. You know, there's, there's this thing that happens when somebody cuts us off in traffic. What is that thing? You know, as many times as I've been cut off in traffic, I don't think they've cumulatively across the course of my life cost me one hour of lifetime. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's not, it doesn't cost me time. I just think immediately when somebody pulls out in front of me at a red light and I think, I think, how dare they? Don't they know who I am? I'm an important person going on an important trip to McDonald's or to Walmart or to, I have to get this one thing or my wife is going to not have what she needs for dinner. Whatever it is, I have this list in my head. How dare they get in the way of me? What is that that makes us so mad? Is it God's name being wounded in that moment? No, it's us, right? We fight battles on our terms because we're fighting for us. We're not fighting for God. And we have to be very, 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 very clear that what we're concerned about, Christians do this all the time. They say, well, God's on this political perspective. Maybe he's not. Maybe you don't know that. Maybe you think you understand God so well, and yet you don't understand all of the complexity of the mind. You know, his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. In the New Testament, it tells us that we're supposed to pray. In Matthew chapter 6, it says this, that we're to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I think the toughest thing for us is sometimes we think, well, we're, we're praying this kingdom into being. We're praying that God would take leadership over our world. We're praying that he would conquer poverty and homelessness, that he would conquer the resistance of our own spirits where we don't want to follow. And we pray all these things, and we forget that the thing that's most in the way of God conquering in this world is us. It's us. Because our pride's in the way, and we want our own kingdom. G.K. Chesterton, a hundred and some years ago, there was a great London uh, newspaper who decided they were going to ask the question of the great thinkers of the day, and Chesterton was one of those. He was a philosopher and thinker. And they went around, and you might have heard this story, but they asked all of these different thinkers. They said, okay, what is wrong with the world today? Just a simple question. Write an essay and turn it into our newspaper, and we're going to publish it. Chesterton wrote a letter, Dear Sirs, I am respectfully, G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? It's me. And why is what's wrong with the world me? Because I'm fighting for my pride and because I am concerned with my name and I'm concerned with everybody around me looking at me and understanding that I've got it all together and I don't. David didn't have the benefit of that because when he stepped out on that battlefield, he looked like 
a crazy person, right? A nine-foot-tall somebody or other who's got this gigantic, absolutely massive spear going up against this young boy who's been accustomed to watching sheep. And David says, listen, it's God's battle. He's defied God's name. This isn't about me. I'm just here to defend what God's about. I love the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the Old Testament. It's hundreds of years into the future at this point. But they, they walk into this foreign uh, territory, Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar the king tells them they're supposed to buy, bow down to this false god. And they say, no, we're not going to do it. And, and, and the, he heats up this furnace and he says, okay, if you're not going to do what I tell you to and worship this false god, well, then you're going to be burned alive in this furnace. And what do they say? They say, well, no, O king that, you know, that might happen. But our God can save us. We don't know whether he's going to or not, but his name is worth not bowing down, and so we're not going to bow down. And we'll see. Maybe he will save us. I wonder if between the lines David has some of that lack of confidence where he's like, I may die today, but it's God's name that's on the line. You know, God is waiting for people who are concerned with his name rather than asking him to be concerned all the time with ours. He is waiting for us to take up his side and say, yes, God, we're willing to listen and be hurt for you because you're damaged all the time. God is constantly wounded by our world where we're not listening, where we're not accomplishing what we're supposed to, where we're not living out what we're called to do. So is the battle God's? And are we seeing it from the standpoint of of God's pride, God's name, God's perspective, God's reputation? There's a third point. Whose weapons will you fight with? David wrote this, said these words. To the, to the giant, he says, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. You ever hear that famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God? It has this line in it that I never understood when I was a kid and I read it, Lord Sabaoth, his name. That's literally the Hebrew word here, Lord Sabaoth. It means Lord of hosts. Eugene Peterson, the guy who translated the message version of the Bible, calls it the God of the angel armies. The God who's got armies that are far beyond this planet. Those are pictured in Revelation 4 and 5. You can look it up. It's a great worship chapter with all of the the armies of heaven worshiping the Son of God. The Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. When David steps out into this field, he says, okay, I don't have a spear. I don't have a javelin. It even goes into great detail and says, David had no sword. Why would somebody step out? And this this Goliath, you know, he's looking down from his nine-foot-tall stance, and he's looking down on this young boy, and he's saying, how in the world is this guy going to come out here? And it looks like he has nothing but a stick. Nothing but a stick. And he says, am I a dog that you come out here? I, I will just kill you quickly, and we'll get it over with. David and Goliath have interesting terminological issues. It's interesting how Goliath talks. He says, I am going to give you to the birds of the the air and the beasts of the field. What does he mean by that? You know, Goliath actually walks out onto this battle field with, with one other person. It's we for Goliath, but he never talks like that. He's saying I, because everything about Goliath is focused on himself, right? He's not fighting for any gods. He's not even probably fighting for a nation. He's fighting because that's what Goliath does. He's an enemy, and he does that sort of thing. And he sees the perspective from a completely self-focused angle. He's completely narcissistic. And David says, God's going to give you into our hands. There's more than one of him. David's out there alone, and he sees himself as part of a team. And Goliath's out there with somebody else, and he sees himself as alone. 
You know, what side of God you're on, whether you're on the good side or the bad side, is a real question every day, right? We get on the wrong side all the time. And whether we're on the right side or the wrong side often has to do with whether we're seeing ourselves being a part of a team where somebody else is in charge or whether we're ourselves in charge. And whether we decide to fight with his weapons, which are completely different than ours, right? When somebody talks bad about me, you know what I want to do? I want to pick up the phone. Instantly, we've got phones for a reason. I pick up that phone and I call the people involved and I say, you know, this is why I'm right and that person's wrong and you should be on my team. That's thinking naturally, right? We fight battles this way all the time. We, we try to get people in our corner. We try to get a team of people around us so that they see it from our angle, so that they can be from our perspective and they can make that other person look bad. And it's like every situation is a referendum on whether we're right or whether we're wrong. Those are the tools we fight with. In our world today, we blog about it. We Facebook about it. We call somebody, we talk about it with all the wrong people and never deal with it the right way. Very, very easy for us to do that. And yet what this passage tells us is that David chose to fight with a completely different set of weapons. The Bible talks about another set of weapons. It says, love your enemies, and it really will be a weapon. It will bless them when they expect to be cursed. It tells us that we're supposed to absolutely be focused on the truth, that we're supposed to believe that the God of the universe loves us no matter what the battle looks like. We're supposed to fight with, ba- with weapons that are of his calling, not our choosing. I was last night leaving the church. It was about 10 o'clock, and I, I just, you know, you work and you work and you work, and you get to the end, and you go, you need some worship music in your soul. And I, I uh, Spotified, I have the Spotify app, you know, and I Spotified David Crowder. And I, I kind of wondered as I put in his name, I've never done this. I thought, I wonder what the first song, it comes up popular songs first, the most popular at the top of the list. And it came up with How He Loves. And I wondered why of all this, Crowder has written and played hundreds of songs, okay? And lots of people like Crowder. How did he come up with this song is the most popular? And then I thought, This is the thing that we lose sight of. It's the weapon we lose sight of the most. We don't believe in the battle that we can give over our reputation in the situation because we don't believe we're loved in the beginning point. We forget that God actually cares what's going on in our lives to the point that we don't have the weapons that he's put out in front of us. We don't want to choose those weapons because we're not sure that the God behind them actually is on our team, that he actually cares what's going on in our lives. Many of us struggle with this. The average person walking into my office says, I'm not sure the God of the universe cares about me. Albert Einstein once said that a great question. He asked it this way. He said, one of the best questions I can ask is, is the universe a friendly place? It's a good question, right? Does the God of the universe like you and take an interest in individual human affairs? And if so, then we get to fight with weapons that are beyond the weapons of this world. We get to fight in ways that are counterintuitive. We don't pick up swords and spears. We don't pick up guns and weapons. We don't pick up the war of words and decide to defend ourselves. What we do is we try to communicate and express the love of God. It's counterintuitive. It makes no sense. Why would if somebody hit you, you turn the other cheek, which is Jesus' line? Why would you forgive when they have never asked for forgiveness? Why would you take this hurt that's going on in their lives and decide that you care about it, even if they've done something out of that hurt that will devastate your life? Well, what David does in this situation, far from personal, he fights a giant who seems like he's far beyond anybody's perspective. There's no way David can conquer him. And yet with a 
a, a little stone, something that isn't meant to hurt anything, frankly. You could mess with one of these all day. I actually had the chance to try it out in Bethlehem. This little Palestinian kid came up to me and said, hey, for five bucks, I'll sell you this, this uh, sling, and you can whirl it around and shoot it off into the distance. And I tried it out, and I didn't buy it. It didn't work worth it. I, I couldn't make it work. You know, for five bucks, no way. I bought something else, you know. Whatever the question is in your life that you're facing, whatever the battle is in your life that you're facing, are you going to fight with God's weapons? Are are you going to choose to be a part of what God's doing? We're going to close with these three questions just again. I want to ask them in a way that's a little different. Just think about them again and, and think about that battle that's in your life. Is that battle your battle or is it God's? Do you see it from his angle mostly or do you see it from your angle mostly? Are you looking up to him or are you mostly just looking across at all of what's going wrong in your life? And if you're looking across, then something's wrong. Second, whose pride is on the line, yours or God's? You know, when you emotionally react in a moment when somebody confronts you or has a problem with you, when you just get so angry you can't take it anymore and you spout off, that's very normal, right? Very natural. And maybe you're legitimized in the fact that they are wrong and you are right. That might actually be true. But then you know it's your pride when you emotionally react. When you're that pent up and there's anger built up inside of you and you have this deep impression that you are wronged, maybe it's about your pride and not about God's name. Maybe it's about your pride and not what's going wrong with heaven. Are you choosing to fight with the weapons God provides or the ones that come more naturally to us? Are you choosing to fight for yourself and buy the things that make sense when you're fighting for yourself? Or are you choosing to fight with weapons that are counterintuitive but are supernaturally given? You know, there's this great passage in Galatians that tells us that there are these, or the Ephesians, that has the, the, uh, the, the armor of God, right? The sword of the Spirit, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith. All of these things are available for us to be warriors for God. We conquer in his name or we don't conquer at all. Join me in prayer.